This is Primer Analytics Podcast number 36. And today we're talking about using 3D printing for models for wind tunnel testing. So traditionally we use other methods. We use materials such as metal and wood and whatever. But with 3D printing, it's been around for maybe about 10 years in the consumer area. Using that for testing is far more beneficial in a lot of ways. And we're going to discuss those different ways today. And to do that, we're looking at a paper called Stiffness Similar Models for Wind Tunnel Tests Based on 3D Printing. This is an open access paper. You can access it in the link in the description. And what these people did, they were looking at, in particular, using 3D printed models for aeroelastic similarity as well as geometric. And there are a lot of benefits for 3D printing. So first of all, let's cover what 3D printing is if you're not too familiar with it. So what 3D printing is, there's a few different methods. The two main ones are something called uh, fused deposition um, which is FDM, and that's where you lay the the plastic or the metal in these layers, and each layer fuses to the layer below it. So you can just build up this model one layer at a time. The other one is called resin. So you have a, like a cube of this material, and then you shoot a laser into it, and then this heats up this area, and then it fuses all the the um, those particles together, whether they're like they're plastics, and then that creates the model that way. And they both have their benefits and detriments. Um, we're not going to get into that. We're just going to talk about regular 3D printing, so in general. And one of the major benefits of 3D printing for wind tunnel tests is that you can, pr you can print very complicated shapes very easily. So one of the major drawbacks of traditional methods such as CNC, for example, which is where you have a slab of material, usually a piece of metal, and then you have to um, like cut out the actual object from that piece of metal. You can't do much on the inside. So you can't, first of all, you can't have um, little cavities very easily. You can't have little locking mechanisms and this and that. And on the outside, you can only have certain features. You can't have um, very complex features. For 3D printing, that's not an issue at all. You can produce, you can produce working gears, a working gearbox in one go. You can just print it and then it'll work straight away. You don't have to print each little bit and then put it together if you don't want to. So it's very um, flexible that way. Another major benefit of 3D printing is that, um, as we'll see in this paper, it can produce aircraft and wings that have very similar aeroelastic properties to a regular aircraft. And that's one major benefit that this method has over other methods. Other methods, often you can't get aeroelastic similarity. Let's just talk about aeroelastic similarity right now. So we're on the same page. So aeroelastic um, effects on an aircraft are effectively um, when an aircraft breaks, like when a wing will snap off kind of thing. And that is usually due to um, some sort of positive feedback, which then amplifies its deformation of whatever object. So your wing, for example, we'll get into some examples later on. And then this just continually grows until the stress on the wing is too much and it will snap. And that's obviously not a great thing. You want to have two wings on an aircraft, not just one or more wings. Um, so 3D printing has a major benefit in being able to produce self-similar um, aeroelastic effects. Other methods such as using metal often do not. And the reason why is because 3D printing, the, the material is usually very flexible. It's not, um, not very flexible, but it has a very low uh, stiffness. So it can flex and it's not taking much of the, the force. So it doesn't have a, a huge 
Uh, it can't flex too much, but the actual amount that it can flex is very easy to flex with that amount. So that's how you can pull the loading into the actual structure of the object instead of taking it on the skin of the object, which is usually not how it works in airplanes. Usually it's the inside structure that takes the force, not the skin. And we'll again, cover that. So they, they were just talking about, to begin with, how um, when you're doing wind tunnel tests, you want to produce um, similar models to what you're testing. So you, not only is it uh, geometrically similar, so we all know when wind tunnels usually scale down the object and you have a, a scaling factor, let's say one to 10 or whatever, and to do that, you use the Reynolds number. But then there's also other scaling um, properties, there's also other similarity properties that you want to satisfy, such as the stiffness similarity. If you have similar stiffnesses, then you can get the same aeroelastic effects, and that way you can actually determine whether your model is good or not. If you don't have similar stiffnesses, then the elasticity is probably going to be different. And then what you're testing in your wind tunnel is not what's going to be in real life, and whatever you find is not going to be applicable. So it's effectively a waste of time. So let's get into it. They say, despite the significant development of numerical computing and flight testing, the current aerospace industry heavily relies on experimental data for, from wind tunnel tests. That's only partly true. So it depends which aerospace industry, for example, um, the defense industry, particularly for uh, fighter jets, they don't really use much wind tunnel testing anymore. It's more their own in-house coding, and then they take it up and they fly and see how it performs. Their codes are that good so far. So, But then other aerospace industries, such as the commercial, like Boeing and Airbus and that, they do use wind tunnel tests, wind tunnels uh, a lot. So it really depends on the industry. In some industries, they're still very heavily reliant on it. And they say, wind tunnel tests show particular importance for the concept design, which determines the fuel life cycle performance and economy of vehicles. That's true. So you can determine how aerodynamic this thing is. The increase of the flight speed and the structural complexity of air vehicles, coupled with a need to avoid risky and costly problems identification during flight testing, have actually driven continued increases in wind tunnel tests. So let's cover that. The increase in flight speed. So we know like complexity of air vehicles, that, that's also obviously going to make it difficult for CFD to handle because the more complex your object is, the more complex your CFD is, and it just gets to a point where your computing power can't match it. Let's talk about the increased flight speed. So aeroelasticity is heavily um, influenced by the increase the, the flight speed. So the more you increase the speed, often you'll get these effects that you don't get at lower speeds. And sometimes there are thresholds where you can punch over and then it's fine. But getting through those thresholds is just pretty dicey. And often you, the higher you go, just the worse it gets anyway. So it really depends. And what this means is that the higher the flight speed, the more prone your aircraft will be to braking. So that's why increasing the flight speed means that we need to be more certain about what we're doing. Otherwise, you're running a lot of risks. And when you get to the testing phase, you're only uh, running the risks of, you know, hurting someone, but also having a catastrophic failure, which then means a lot of costs and also time wasted. And how the testing, the R&D phase for air vehicles occurs is you have um, the concept design. They have a little figure here and nicely sums it up. You first determine what your aircraft should do, what it should look like, blah, blah, blah. And then you go test it. And then you reiterate that process until you get something which seems to be fitting everything you need it to do. And it's holding up to um, the aerodynamic performance that you need. Then you actually make it. And then you put it out and you start flying it around, seeing how that goes. And then if that goes well, then you finally make it. They say that 
Wind tunnel models are reduced scale alternatives to the prototypes of aerial vehicles used in wind tunnels. The design and fabrication of wind tunnel models is of an important aspect to the quality and cost of data acquisition. So that's true. Instead of building an aircraft straight away and flying it, you put it in the wind tunnel a model and that can dramatically reduce costs and also time and also reduce the, the um, potential um, injury to other people. You know, if you put up an aircraft and it doesn't work very well, then the pilot is going to have a bit of a hard time with that and they could get injured and it does happen. That's why they get paid pretty well actually as well. It's not a, a job for everyone. <laughs> They said, the fabrication of wind tunnel models has traditionally been a highly skilled and time-consuming process. Remarkable efforts have been made to improve the models. And this is true too. Like, it's a lot of the models that I've made. I mean, when I first started doing uh, research in aerodynamics, I remember going to the, um, to the workshops there and getting the technicians to make my stuff. And they would invariably come back and say, can you make this simpler? It'll it will cost far less for you if you do it much simpler because just make one simplification because it's really hard for them to do. The problem is that that simplification then results in my model becoming less similar to the real life model that I'm actually interested in. So it gets to a point where you think to yourself, well, if I make it any less similar, how accurate are my results? And, but then also on the other hand, how accurate can I make it based on the amount of money that I got? So that's one of the major problems with traditional manufacturing methods. And one of the major um, costs is the tooling. So to make a tool to actually do what you need is often a very expensive process. And if you're only using it once, then that's not great. The idea of tooling and for manufacturing, engineering manufacturing, is when you make the tool, the idea is that you use this tool again and again, maybe for 10, 20, 100,000 um, prototypes which then brings the cost of the tool per prototype down dramatically if you're only using it for one prototype then all that cost gets lumped in with just that prototype and it becomes very expensive that's where 3d printing uh, can really beat this other old method of manufacturing there is no tooling costs and there's also um, it doesn't really cost any more to make a piece of uh, your model more complex because there's no additional labor going into it it's just the, the printer going along. They go on and say, models possess a stiffness similarity with the real vehicle are especially important to study the dynamic, aerodynamic, and aeroelastic properties of their vehicles. To quantitatively represent the real vehicle operated in the atmosphere, the stiffness similar models um, tested in the wind tunnel should maintain a similar aerodynamic shape. So the geometric similarity, which is we were all familiar with, like when we test the wing, we obviously know that the wing needs to look like a wing. It can't look like something different. Otherwise, it's not going to perform aerodynamically the same. But along with that, you also need to have similar structural param parameters, such as stiffness similarities with the real vehicle. And then they go on and talk about 3D printing. They say a remarkable aspect of 3D printing is the ability to produce internal forms that would be difficult to fabricate by traditional techniques. That's what I was talking about earlier, where... If you're using, for example, a CNC machine, trying to do anything inside the actual object is very difficult, if not impossible, mostly. So you can't really do any internal stuff. With 3D printing, you can. And that also often reduces the number of parts that you have in your model because you can build it all in one, one um, go, which then also makes it less complex and more um, real, like more sensitive of the real case. So let's talk about the requirements for the, similar, for the uh, similarities. For the stiffness similarity, they say the model should meet similarity requirements, measuring requirements, and strength requirements. 
Among them, similarity requirements are the most critical. Wind tunnel models are designed according to the similarity requirements that determine the factors scaling down from aerial vehicles. Geometric similarity, i.e. the outside, means that the, the outside of the model means that the external contour of the model is consistent with the vehicle to ensure the similarity of the flow, which is the basic criterion to be met by all models. And again, this is very important because if you have different outside surfaces, you're going to get different aerodynamics, which means that you're going to have different aeroelasticity anyway because the forces on the model are going to be different. So you need to have the, the right geometry. Then they go on to say the stiffness similarity and mass similarity determine the internal structure of the model that has the same stiffness and mass distribution as the vehicle. And these are important because not only are they coupled, so the mass similarity uh, will affect the air elasticity of the actual vehicle, but also it will affect the um, the stability of the vehicle, so the static stability and the dynamic stability, which are also important parts for the testing. You want to know that your vehicle is statically and dynamically stable. And then they go on and talk about, for dynamic models, that's things called slutter, for example. That's a dynamic similarity that should be met. Flutter is part of aeroelasticity, and this is the point where, um, let's say you take the wing, this is a quintessential example, and you start um, increasing the speed that you're flying at, and the loading increases on the wing, obviously, because you're increasing the lift being produced, because the velocity is increasing, and the velocity, the uh, lift is just proportional to the velocity squared, so the force on the wing is increasing. Then you get to this point, not all aircraft have this, but a lot do, if, and that's where the wing will start vibrating. And then if you increase the speed even more, you'll vibrate even more and it'll become even more violent. The problem with this is that it's usually a positive feedback loop, which means that this vibration starts growing. It's like a resonance. And then that will result in the wing deforming so much that it will just disintegrate. And this, there's a lot of videos out on the internet that show this happening. and. <laughs> It's um, really cool to see if, as long as you're not in the aircraft, if you're in the aircraft, then you may need a new change of underwear after that, if you get out, hopefully. That's where flutter comes in, and that's one aeroelastic um, effect. They go on and talk about this now static aeroelastic models with integral shells. So the aeroelastic models are used to study the elasticity of aerial vehicles, which is one of the most as important aspects concerning the safety and performance of high speed vehicles, as we mentioned, where the higher, the faster you go, the more this could incur. And I look at now in figure four, for those of you playing along at home, they have two pictures. One of the old way of making a model and one with the new way with 3D printing. The old way has, let's, for those of you who can't see this, imagine a regular wing. And now imagine every, um, so you have the entire span, every 25% of the span, every quarter of the span, they've now broken this up into one section and they just made that one section. So over the a regular wing, you have now four sections going from the wing root to the wing tip. Each uh, will be then put together to make the entire wing span. Now, I don't know how anyone could think this is a good idea, but just looking at this picture where the wing twists, the these different sections now are twisting at different angles. So each section is now no longer aligned. You have gaps between them and the trailing and leading edges are no longer flush because they're at different angles rotated about the um, about the mean area that we call the MAC. So like the the axis going through the, the span, in other words. 
So there's no way in, this is going to approximate um, a regular wing. Their aerodynamics is not going to be the same. Their elasticity is not going to be the same. So this is dodgy as. But with 3D printing, you can print the entire wing in one go. And the internal section can be the same as well. So now you don't have that problem. It actually looks really good. It twists properly. So that's one major benefit. And again, this is now going to have much better aerodynamic effects, much more similar, much better aeroelasticity. And then they go on to talk about the design of segment structures. So I said, as mentioned above, the model wing consists of a steel, single steel spar and a single plastic shell made by SL. For convenience of design and fabrication, a rectangular section was adopted for the metal spar. For the integral shell, the dimensions of its internal cavity were designed according to the stiffness similarity. So this is really cool. They make the thickness of this outside shell such that the stiffness is the same as the actual wing. So you can change the thickness based on what you need. And then with a regular wing, if, if what you know uh, is that in a regular wing, the outside is really just an aluminium or aluminum, aluminum um, shell. It really doesn't take much load at all. It's the inside that takes the load. There's a regular spar that goes through the entire, from, from the wing root to the wing tip. And then there are ribs, which are perpendicular to that. And this internal structure, and then there are stringers and blah, blah, blah. But these are the two main things, the spars and the ribs. And these two main structures take the majority of the force. If something happens to any one of anything in this area, then the wing will probably break. Um, and the shell really doesn't take much force at all. So by being able to use 3D printing and uh, this plastic, you're actually replicating that very well, where you have the internal spar that's taking the force, and the shell itself is not really taking much force. You, you're replicating the stiffness that the regular shell on an aircraft has. So that's what they're doing here, and that's really cool. And then go on and say, to more accurately simulate the torsional deformation of the vehicle, and ensure the stiffness similarity, a vertical web was designed at the rear edge of the model that divided the cavity into two independent chambers. So again, what they're going saying here is to and then make this model even more elastic, elastically similar to the real model, they then put in another part. They divided the inside into two chambers, which then gave the right um, properties there. And what they talked about here was torsional deformation. This is another elastic phenomenon that can result in catastrophic failure. This is where the wing twists. In other words, it's in layman terms, it twists. And how this happens is you load the wing with the lift, the, that then results in the wing twisting. As it twists, it increases the lift production again, which then results in more twist. And then it increases the lift production again because it's at a high angle attack. And it just goes like this until the actual wing snaps off. So good times. And this is what we don't want to happen, which is why we want to make a model that can perform the way we want it to so we can study it to see if it's performing as required or not. Before we go any further, I just want to say to check out everything hyperdynamics, check out the instrumentation we do. We do traverses, PIV, and atmosphere hawk. Atmosphere hawk actually measures the density in your experiments. So you can use that to know that your experiments are accurate and then you can actually validate your CFD much easier. It takes out a lot more errors that you have that you don't know. Check out the courses we put on. We have um, CFD, theoretical, and experiments. So if you want to learn more, like you're learning now, check out those courses. And you can become a gun at aerodynamics and check out the International Aerodynamics Conference we put on every year. Links in the description. 
So let's move on now. So they've got their model and they're looking at 3D printing. And now they're looking at how this model performs. First off, they're looking at the stiffness calibration. So they calculated before they made this model how stiff this wing should be. And now they want to determine if that actually does um, agree with their initial calculations. And so what they did is they put this wing in um, this, this um, test setup, they loaded it up, and they saw how the deformation of the, of the wing um, occurred. And they looked at the experimental results of this validation process with their theoretical calculations, and they found that it's very close, like it's within 5%, the, the deformation along the wing, so it's really good. Again, this is where theory actually matches practice, and they've been able to do this very well. From there, they then were able to put it into the wind tunnel and test it because they now know that it's the wings are deforming as they expected it to, as they designed it to, and as they hopefully printed it to, which they did. And now they're looking at the wings' um, torsional divergence Mach number. So again, we talked about the torsional divergence, which is when the wing uh, twists, and this happens at a certain Mach number, and it was in the range of 0 0.6 to 0 0.65. And they said that this was consistent with the prototype's torsional divergence condition, which was Mach 0 0.63. So again, it's very similar. And then they sum up and they say that um, now they go on to the benefits of this 3D printing. They say the benefits from, benefits from the low elastic modulus of the resins, so this, these plastics, and the fabrication capacity to build complex structures of SL processes, so the resin, structural similarity between models and prototypes could be ensured. So what they're saying is that this resin or this plastic is, has such a low elastic modulus, which means it flexes quite easily. It doesn't take much. Uh, force away from the actual spa so it replicates real life and the fact that you can actually fabricate what you're going to be testing you don't have to simplify it this is really good news for um, designers now and you can get structural similarity as well as geometric similarity and then say the scale dimensions are too small to be machined if this same structure is maintained with regular uh, metal-based fabrication processes. Therefore, you need to use simplified versions. However, for the SL, the um, 3D printing method, you can get much higher similarity in geometry because you can do complex structures. And I have a figure here, figure eight, which shows the difference between um, conventional manufacturing processes and 3D printing compared to the vehicle prototype that you want. If you look at the conventional manufacturing process compared to the vehicle, it's very different. You have a just the one inside spa and then the outside sheet. That's not the same as the, the vehicle prototype at all, where the vehicle prototype had um, a few little, like the spa was very different and the plastic model could replicate that. So the plastic model was far better than the one made out of metal, the conventional one. And then finally, they looked at this, this calibration test. And this is interesting from um, a general aerospace point of view. So they said they used a non-contact optical testing system um, to measure the deformation of the model. So this is important for a couple of reasons. One, this, this uh, method could be seen as non-intrusive, which means it won't affect the results. Two, it can also be seen as the entire method can be seen as non-destructive. Um, so what they did is they loaded the wing up, see they saw how it deformed, and then from there they could measure it and see if their wing was producing um, the right similarity. And it did. 
and the reason why using non-destructive methods are good and how let's first cover actually how non-destructive methods are different to destructive methods you might have picked it up from the name so non-destructive methods mean that when you test your object you're not actually destruct destroying it you can test the stiffness of it and how it performs without destroying the actual model compared to destructive methods <laughs> to get to figure out the, the performance of it you actually have to destroy it and what that means is you can't fly it then if you destroy it, you don't have anything to, fl to fly. You have to make a new one. And in aerospace, en uh, aerospace engineering, that's usually not what you want to do. A general um, rule of thumb is that you want to test what you fly and fly what you test. So what that means is that whatever you're testing, you want to then put that exact model, that exact object up in the sky. The reason why is because every manufacturing process can have defects. And you want to make sure that whatever you put in the sky does not have a defect. So you want to test that beforehand. If you have to do that uh, by destroying the model, then obviously you can't put that in the sky anymore. You don't have the model anymore. You have to make a new one. So this is a non-destructive testing method, and this is a really good way of doing it. And they they um, said here the maximum error of 3.4% between the um, what they needed, like the real-life um, aircraft and their model, that's really good. So the stiffness... Um, deviation was minimal and that means that the um, stiffness similarity was there as well as the geometric, geometric similarity. Now they went on to the dynamic calibration. So this is an, yet another uh, point along the aeroelastic consideration path and it's we looked at the static now looking dynamic and this is when the wing will start vibrating effectively and it can result in it hitting its kind of resonance and then it will disintegrate. They finally say here in, in figure 11, the actual results measure the desired data fairly well. And it can be concluded that the 3D printed model can represent the aluminium vehicle prototype in the prediction of dynamic behaviors. This is a huge victory because it means that your air elasticity can now be predicted well. Now in their um, graph, it was pretty good. I mean, the target mode that they're looking at was about 240 hertz. So it means that this thing is vibrating at 240 hertz. And the actual mode was about 270. So it's not fantastic, but it's pretty close. And it's much closer than regular uh, manufacturing methods. So that means that 3D printing is a massive step forward. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe. Check out everything about Printerx. Check out the interpretations we do. Check out the courses we do. And check out the National Airworks Conference. We put on every year. And check out some other podcasts. See you in the next, see you in the next podcast. Peace out.